So we're going to go ahead and uh, pick up this morning in the uh, sermon series in the book of Revelation. And I can't tell you, I can't express enough how much there is to learn about God and his word if you take the time to do it. I know I'm a pastor, and so you go, of course you do it because it's your job, right? And I appreciate that. Uh, But man, I'm just blown away every uh, time I study God's word, how much I learn from it. And I know people who've been doing this a lot longer than me, and they continue to learn about God and his word. So I I praise God for that. And we finished off at the end of chapter 16 uh, last week. And uh, so we're going to pick up today. If you brought a Bible with you, grab it, flip to the very last book the Bible, and then find chapter 17 of the book of Revelation. If you didn't bring one, you can grab one off the chair row. Again, you will find the last book of the Bible, find chapter 17, and then we're going to read this today, and then we will talk about it. All right, so here's the word this morning from Revelation chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, come, I will show you the, pay- the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of earth committed adultery. And the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated by the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel came to me in the spirit in the desert. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, and she, it was filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And this is the title that was written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Then the angel came to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction." The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because he was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are the seven hills on which the woman sets. They are the seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns that you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom, but who for an hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until... God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. It's Revelation 17. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you this morning uh, for a chance to be together in your word and learning from you. We do pray that this morning, Lord, that you would be our teacher, that as we come to this text, we would come with minds open to what your spirit has to teach us, that we would come with... um, uh, 
leaving the things that we presume to be true and, and asking you to instruct us in the ways that you would, can only do, only you can do. Father, we ask for a, 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 the presence of your Holy Spirit, uh, not just in my teaching, Lord, but in the hearing of the word, in the, uh, the way we consume your word and integrate it into our lives. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth that you have for us as we live this life here. May you be glorified. I pray that you would, Lord, this morning, glorify yourself through your text, that we might know you better, we might love you more, and we might submit to you all the more as the day of judgment approaches. We love you so much. We thank you for the chance to learn from you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's a pretty esoteric passage as you read it, just out of context, we've been working up to it, and there's been so many kind of uh, languages, vi- visual languages used and kind of allegories in the book of Revelation that it's, it's even that though is still a bit of a jarring experience. Um, I want to uh, pick up where we, I want to tie something in real quick because all this stuff we're working through the book and it doesn't stand alone and I want to go back to chapter 16 verse 19 uh, where we first hear about this, uh, this great uh, city being tr- uh, having this cup poured on them. You'll recall that there were seven golden bowls being poured out of God's, what, wrath upon the people of the earth. And the seventh was this bowl poured out into the air. Verse 19 says this, Then the great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. Now check this verse out. And God remembered Babylon the great. God remembered Babylon the great. So in the middle of all this judgment of the world, remember the, the God pouring out his judgment on all, he remembers Babylon, and that's what we find out then whenever the angel comes to John and says, hey, come with me, I'll show you something. He's going to show John the specific vision of Babylon the great and why God is judging Babylon. So, so that just ties it back into last week a little bit that he saw this coming, and the, uh, he, we hear about it first, for the first time in um, God's remembrance of Babylon so then, so then, now we're going to get into that a little bit. We'll come back to that later on, that 1619, I think, uh, 1619, yeah. Um, we'll come back to that later on, but this is what the word says. So one of the seven angels that had those seven bowls came and said to John, come and I'm going to show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. And uh, this might sound um, interesting but, or a bit odd, but there's a vision within a vision here, Right? And we've had that multiple times. I say it's a bit like the Russian nesting dolls. God keeps unpacking it deeper and deeper for John. He's taking John on a journey. Some of this journey has been that some of these things are in the past that have happened. Some things are happening and some things are going to happen, right? And there's one more thing we'll get to today, which is there are, and you heard it in the text already, there are things that were that are not now but will be again. So it's kind of, and, and it's tied into the abyss. So it's kind of this time of, of absence of all the things you would expect to see and then they return uh, with a vengeance. And so you have these kind of movements in the text that we have to pay attention to, a vision within a vision. Come with me, and I will show you the great prostitute, Babylon the Great. Now, this is quite an introduction of a city, right? Um, I'm not sure that you want to be introduced as a prostitute in your life in any form, right? Um, but that's how we get the introduction to Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great is a, a prostitute, it says, setting by many waters. And so we learn that. What else we learn about the Babylon? And with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated by the wine of her adulteries. And so there's three, there's three things in these two sentences that you see right away, and it's that 
Babylon the Great is a, a great prostitute, and I don't want to keep hitting that, but it, it's going to be evident throughout, and that the kings of the earth commit adultery with her, and that the inhabitants of the earth are intoxicated with the wine of what? Her adultery. So you could stop and say they're inhabited, intoxicated by the wine, but it's not it. It's the wine of her adulteries. And she goes, oh my goodness, what's going on here? I want to just take a minute and unpack for a, a second the way God uses faithfulness throughout his word. You might read this and go, this is a crazy thing in Revelation, but this is throughout the Bible that God talks about his people Israel as being faithful or unfaithful, his people as being believing or unbelieving, right? And he calls them, shockingly so, I would say, prostitutes or prostituting themselves or being unfaithful, committing adultery. Um, we often will say at a, at a wedding ceremony, um, this is a vision for God in this church, right? But our, our earthly marriages are imperfect in every way. If you, if you don't believe that's true, get into one. <laughs> You'll find out. It's pretty imperfect in here. <laughs> so we, we um, but God is giving people a vision for what he desires from his people, which is faithfulness. And so the language is definitely language of judgment here, the great prostitute sitting by the waters. Um, and uh, so let's just, we'll leave that there for now. But just know that that's a quick history of the Bible. That's not a new concept. And, and he's going to juxtapose fidelity and faithfulness versus infidelity and adultery. Those are opposite things. God desires one and not the other. He judges one and not the other. So then it says this. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated by her wine. Now you start, you start to see here. And this gets ex explicitly made true in the text, but this isn't like a person, you know? And this, isn't, this is about um, the whole earth and nations and the way kings are approaching Babylon. There's two distinct betrayals happening here. The first is that the kings, those that are appointed to rule over men, are committing adultery. That means being unfaithful, being, uh, having infidelity with this mistress, with this prostitute by the waters. And that means the leadership is corrupt in some way. And, 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 and if this stop there, I would probably be like, oh, those kings are terrible, those terrible kings. But then the second betrayal is equally as bad, and it's this, that the inhabitants of the earth, and that would be all of us, are drunk on the wine of the indulgences of her adulteries. So it's not like the populace is saying, oh, if we had better kings, we wouldn't be such sinners. It's like the, the populace is going, Let's go. We love it. And we, the populace, is as guilty as any leadership that we have. There's this laying bare of the human heart here that we are intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries, that we're drawn into these false promises. And by the way, if you don't know the root of an adultery, it's a false promise. It's to break covenant with one you have a covenant with because you're believing something about someone else. That's not true. It's a deception, and it never ends well. So the kings are being judged here, and the inhabitants are being judged here. And then we're going to get some more uh, detail on this. Now, that was just the overview, verse 3. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. Now, that's the same language John's used before. He's gone. A desert means like a wilderness place, a wild place. And in this place, he saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, that was covered with blasphemous names and seven heads and ten horns. And we're going to unpack that later as well. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. And so what we have to understand about this 
um, temptress or this, the, I hate to keep saying the word prostitute, but that's how it's described in the text, is that she's very well ornamented. She's very properly dressed. Matter of fact, attractively dressed. We see here that she's dressed in purple. I don't know if you recall but from the text, but purple is a color of royalty, but it's, it's also a fine cloth. The language you're going to, the word we're going to get from the language here is it's all expensive stuff. It's bling. It's what's in the windows when you walk by on the sidewalks, right? You see, you, 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 you covet it. If I could get that engagement ring. I was hearing somebody tell a story about how they did the little thing where they dropped a wedding ring in a glass for their, right, for, at, at the, at, when they proposed to their fiance and have a drink of your champagne. And the girl looks down and, what is that? And she has to like look, look at it, you know, like zoom on the phone, <laughs> you know, hopefully the liquid's doing the magnifying trick. This? That's what it, it's that stuff that we crave a little more. I mean, it's only a quarter, it's only a half carat, it's only a three-quarter carat. Just a little bigger. That's the way she's dressed. She's dressed finely in fine cloth, scarlet, which is red, interestingly also the color of the beast that she's riding, dressed in purple and scarlet and glittering with gold, precious stones, pearls. You can just hear the spectacle of the beast, or of the, of the prostitute, the way she is, is winsome, attractive to those who behold her. And she holds a golden cup in her hand. And, and again, the imagery here is building towards something. And I want you to understand again and try just with me to imagine that John's beholding this, and he's, he's astonished is what the text says. Wow. How glorious, how beautiful, how spe- what a spectacle she is. And if, and if we stop there, we, we, would, we would think, that's great. John's seeing a great vision, but it's a great and terrible vision. To put a really fine point on it, what John is beholding in some way is wealth and prosperity consolidated in one place. You know, sometimes I hear people say about our country, we're one of the wealthiest countries on the earth, and if you travel to other countries, you will see that we often are. But some of you know if you travel other places, you'll find out we aren't that wealthy at all. There are people who have things that just make our jaws drop. The wealth and prosperity of Babylon, the great. So she's beholding, or she's giving this um, demonstration of her earthly wealth, her prosperity. But then we find this golden cup. And there's a tie back for sure with the golden cup and the golden bowls of God's judgment. She holds a golden cup in her hand. And what is it filled with? Abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This is not a cup of success. It's not a cup of, of glory. It's not a cup of winning in life. It's a cup of all the atrocities that's led her to where she is. As a matter of fact, I said earlier, we'll go back to, six, to 16, uh, 19, chap- chapter 16, verse 19 again. Look at what it says. And God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. So there's a tie in here between the cup she holds, which is her abominations and the, the, uh, her adulteries, with God's own wrath. She's holding it in her hand. 
detestable things, abominable things, things that God finds deeply offensive and the filth of her adulteries. Her, and again, the language there kind of is hard, but her unfaithfulness. What does God expect of Babylon? What is his desire from Babylon? That she be faithful, right? That she not be an adulterer, does she not have abominable things, the things that God despises, and yet she has a cup full? There's an imagery here that she will drink the cup that God has given her to drink. He remembers Babylon. Reading on in verse 5, and this is the title written on her forehead. Now, a couple things I want to say before we get to the title but the first is, you remember there's been a few titles we've heard from the book of Revelations, and one of them we will hear at the end of this chapter that came very early on the thigh of the Lord. You remember what it said? Lord of lords and king of kings, right? I mean, it was written that way on his thigh. Well, here we have on her forehead. That should remind us that they talked, and that it's not a direct tie, but we must recognize that it's for all to see here. You write it here. Who's going to see that? Everyone but you, right? No one's going to... You're going to not be able to see it. Everyone's going to see it. But also uh, reminding us of uh, the mark of the beast on people's foreheads and people's hands. And so this title is written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. That means that uh, Babylon itself is actually the mother, notice, of prostitutes and the mother of the abominations of the earth. Babylon, having this written on her forehead, she's the cause, she brings them into existence. It's not only that she herself is unfaithful, but she gives birth to people who are unfaithful, to situations who are unfaithful, to constructs who are unfaithful. It's what she manifests in this world. And you have to see this, and we're going to we're going to get right into where this ends up in the book. I've been telling you there's kind of four looks at the book of Revelation, but this one just screams with history, but also with our current situation and the future. She gives birth to things that are un, uh, unfaithful. She gives birth to things that are unpleasing to God. She just invents new ones all the time. Verse 6 then. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Now, I think this is the third or fourth time in the book of Revelation. That's how it's described. John says he's on Patmos because of the testimony of Jesus. The churches in Asia Minor he writes to are going to suffer because of the testimony of Jesus. And he's been writing this letter to them to encourage them because when the day of trial comes, they could stand and then stand, that they would end in their faith. The blood of those who have already died for the cause of Christ. I don't think that this is euphemistic here. She's drunk with the blood of the saints. I think that saints are giving their very lives, and she is loving it. She's loving it. Sapienza, a couple weeks ago, Mike Sapienza said that these, there's images of this in the Old Testament. Remember, there was king after king that would require Israel to bend a knee to them. And the faithful would not bend a knee, but the faithless, the, 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 those who had committed adultery, bent a knee. And the ones who wouldn't would give their lives. You remember we sang the song about Daniel and the lions didn't get, you know, they wanted to take his life. They didn't get to, but they wouldn't take his life. Paying with their own blood. 
here it is, John, in verse 6. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. I, I wonder, is there anything in our lives that we could think about that we have seen our whole lives a certain way? And this is just, when, I, when I've been looking at the text, and I keep praying that God would reveal to us the things that we need to see differently, but you've seen it one way your whole life, and all of a sudden you're like, I've never seen it like that before. I've never noticed what's really at play here. I've never, and I could, I could categorize and iterate perhaps a bunch of things that you might think I'm completely out in the weeds on, so I probably won't do that. But, you know, some constructs, okay, let, let me just throw a few of them out. Why not? For some of you have traveled outside of the United States. That's not a bragging thing. It's just a thing you've got to do. It changes how you see yourself in good and bad ways. There are times that you, I, when I travel outside of the country with some of you, there's times that we say, wow, um, we, are, we do great things all over the world. And there are times where we say, wow, we've done some terrible things all over the world. But if, but if, if you don't have a vision to see that, we don't see that. Or how about this? You read a little bit of history. The church has done amazing work. And the church has done great evil. And I mean Little C Church. I don't mean the people of God, but I mean we, we get wrongheaded about stuff in a hurry and cause all kinds of pain and suffering. As a matter of fact, a big part of our work often is to heal those that we've harmed, to make space, to invite people to forgiveness in Christ who we ourselves have driven away. There's so many things like this, and I wonder, as John looked, I wonder if he had always thought, you know, he was astonished when he saw Babylon the Great. I was greatly astonished besides myself as I saw her. It also could mean that John's perplexed. I don't know what this means. I'm, I, I, this vision, I'm confused. And so this is great because it says this, uh, and when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. The angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns, which is great. Again, I told you once before in the book of Revelation, it says, I'm going to tell you what, you're about, what you've just seen. I'm going to explain this to you. Well, here the angel says to John, I'm going to explain to you what you have seen. And he begins to break this down. I don't know if you remember uh, what, what this reminded me of, because there's a, what, I told you I was doing markups on this, right, when I've been studying it, and one of the things I did in my notes is I wrote the uh, 10, 7, 7, 10, 7, 10, over the, so I could see the pattern, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, it's coming up, right, the seven hills and the seven kings, and, um, and I was writing all those things down, and, and then it said, I'm going to explain to you the mystery, and it brought back that uh, memory of uh, the magic decoder rings, the back of the cereal boxes. Do you ever do when you were a kid? I'm old, I know. Oh, you guys. Okay, I don't know what's on cereal boxes anymore because I don't eat cereal, but you know, it used to be you'd have a certain code in the back of the comic book, transpose this letter and that letter. Probably the most famous was um, when Mike said, Is the season? I thought, uh, Christmas? <laughs> is the season? Uh, um, which is coming quickly, sadly. Uh, I mean, the year's gone quickly. Uh, but you remember, um, what's that kid's name uh, in a Christmas story? Ra uh, Ralphie? He's got the magic, and he's working it. He locks himself in the bathroom. Leave me alone. I'm going to figure out the code, you know. And then and what does it end up saying? Uh, buy more Ovaltine. <laughs> A stupid commercial? What if your whole life 
you thought it was one thing and it was something else. And you got the code and you're like, a stupid commercial? That's what we've been doing? Great movie, by the way. I love that movie. <laughs> uh, so John's going to get the decoder ring from the angel. He's going to explain to John exactly what's going on here. I'm going to explain it to you. The woman of the beast who rides, uh, and the beast she rides, with the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. So say it again. The beast that you, you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his or its destruction. See, in the NIV, uh, 80, whatever this is, 84 version, I have his. When I was looking at it, it's its. Now, it's probably not a huge thing in the Greek there, but um, the beast is going to, is gone when John's there, but it's going to rise again, going to come back. Once was not, is uh, now, once was, now is not, yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. And so that's the idea that in the past you've seen the beast, you fought with it, and in the present it's absent. You don't know where it's at, but, I, but the text tells us where the beast is, where? In the abyss. You remember that we had the abyss before where the human suffering came out in one of the plagues and it came out of the dark of the abyss and it attacked men, the locusts, and would bite them but not consume them and make men miserable, returning from the abyss. But returning from the abyss, not for victory, but for judgment, destruction. The beast will be destroyed. There's already, even this early in the description of the beast, the end of the beast given. It will come from the abyss, that dark place, and it will go out to his or its own destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, man, there's so much to unpack here, will be astonished, that's the same word used that John used when he says he saw Babylon the Great, when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet is to come. And so they're going to astonish those, those who have, whose names are not written in the book of life because the fact that the beast was not, it was, is not, and will be. They're, they're blown away by that, right? I want to unpack this just for a minute. Those, we talk about this all the time, and there, there's doctrine teaching throughout the Bible is so consistent, and I know we can see it with our own lens, and so I want to be cautioned against that in some way, but here it is again, that the inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world. And, and, and in there is a subtlety to the church that you've been written in the book of the life since the creation of the world. That, that that's, and we're going to get back to that in a minute in the text. But uh, what a great reality that in God's grace to you, he's written your name in the book of life before the world began. But those who are not, and there are those who are not, will be astonished when they see the beast because he once was, now is not, for the same reasons. Um, okay, this comes, uh, this, this requires a mind with wisdom, right? And then we're gonna unpack a little more. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sets. They are also seven kings. And whenever I was reading that, the very first, like when I was going through the whole book, I've been reading the whole book of Revelation, I hope you have been too. When I saw that, I'm like, seven, seven hills, and seven, what does it say? Seven hills and seven um, heads. Seven heads and seven hills. 
I'm like, seven heads and seven hills, and heads are like authority and hills, and I just put in, in Google, that's how I type, by the way, seven, the city, uh, seven hills, what did I put in? City of seven hills, that's what I put in. Enter. And guess what came back? Rome. Rome, right. The city, uh, the, the, the prostitute set by the waters, the seven hills with the seven heads on which the woman sets the great city, Rome. Now, to be fair, there are a bunch of, if you go like Wikipedia, there's a bunch of cities that say we're founded on seven hills. So that's not the only place in the world there's seven hills. But it's really interesting because we have seven hills on which the woman sits, a city on seven hills, which indeed, Steve, is Rome. As a matter of fact, I dig it a little more because I'm a nerd and I wanted to know. I wanted to learn. You want to learn? I wanted to learn a little bit. So I found a map. And I'm not sure we'll see it. Oh, it's so dark in here. But you can see, it's, this is the map over here. And those spots, if you look here, are the seven cities. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, right there. Here is the river Tiberius that goes right through, right past Rome. And then actually out this way is actually the sea. And this does go out to the sea. I went ahead and looked at it to see. See. But there's seven. And then I was just kind of blown away because I was looking at that. And I'm like... It kind of, if you, it's hard to see on the screen here, but it kind of looks like a crown, the city on seven hills. And so we have this kind of direct correlation with Rome. Then I was like, well, what does that mean, Rome? Like Rome then, Rome now, Rome in the future? What Rome is this, right? If it's Rome. And I was uh, pleased, delighted, shocked to discover that the Roman city on seven hills was established in 753 B.C., 800 years before Christ. And when it was first established, it was actually seven individual areas that grew together to become a kingdom, that grew together to become the great city, the great state of Rome, and what became known as the Roman Empire. I'll remind you again, lest we become too myopic about our own situation and our own status, that Jews were being oppressed by the Roman Empire. That's why the, the Jewish people went to Pilate for the crucifixion of Jesus, because they didn't think we had the authority to do it. I want to remind you that in the time of John, Christians were being persecuted by the Roman Empire. It was, it was as I've said before, a casual thing to torture a Christian. And in the middle of all of this, you have then two major cities, Jerusalem, that's falling at the judgment of God, and Rome, that's falling at the judgment of God. As a matter of fact, there have um, been a lot of studies that say that the major two cities that fall in the book of Revelation is Jerusalem and Rome. There's an overview. You can look at the text. I think it's like chapters 13 through 19 is the fall of Rome, and chapters 7 to 12, that's my math and memory on this, is the fall of Jerusalem, the judgment of Jerusalem, God's people. One more interesting tie-in, by the way. Uh, you remember I said the, the large hailstones with blood that fell on the people, they were a thousand, they were, what was it, a thousand, hundred pounds of peace or something like that? Um, there's the writer Josephus, who's a historical writer, who wrote about the fall of Jerusalem and how um, they were using catapults to fling huge stones that weighed a talent onto the city. And there's a text which is really interesting in the... Uh, in Josephus' writing where he says, and they cried out, the sun, I can't remember what the, what the, the phrase is, the sun is coming 
S-O-N, is coming. And historians have said maybe it was a typo, maybe he said something else, but they actually believe, some believe, that he was mocking Christians who, while Jerusalem was being, you know, being uh, destroyed, were crying out that it was the coming of Christ, that they were believing even as they were perishing in the city. It's pretty wild. I didn't, I didn't catch that before, but I remember I said, when I saw it, I was like, wait, we talked about this. I go out with these hailstones full of blood, I think it's what it right, mixed with blood, uh, and crushing people are. And then here's a historical writing from the time of the fall of Jerusalem where Josephus says they were running around screaming, the sun is coming, the sun is coming, S-O-N. Again, we can become too focused on our own time and not realizing that the, the church has survived great ordeals already. So we have seven, then we have the, the seven uh, hills and the seven heads. Let's see where we're at. Um, then there also then are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. So there's five, there's five kings, one who is, and then the other is not yet there, not yet ruling. And even in the text um, of Jesus' birth, we see there's multiple Caesars who are ruling over the time. You remember the one was persecuting Jesus when he was first born, and then there's Pilate who, who ends up um, judging Christ when he's, when he's 30. And so multiple rulers who have been ruling over, and then there's more rulers yet to come, one more ruler yet to come. I don't have exact stuff on that. I just think it's interesting that there's this kind of succession of rulers. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. And I found that was really interesting. The eighth king is actually the beast that she's riding on. And he belongs to the seven and is going to its or his destruction as well. And so we have now the, the seven kings. The eighth king is the beast that is also being judged. Let's read on 12. The ten horns you saw are ten kings that have not yet received the kingdom, but will have one hour to receive authority as kings along with the beast. And so this gets into this idea that at the end there's going to be a quick succession of kings coming, right? Now again, I know I'm kind of painting with broad brushes here, and there's mystery in this, I'm telling you. But there's something about the end rule that they will quickly rule for short periods of time. It says an hour, but what's an hour in the text, right? But they're going to rule for a minute and they're gone. They're going to rule for a minute and they're gone. But they have a purpose, and we're going to see what the purpose is here. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not received the kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings with the beast, along with the beast, and they have one purpose. And, and first I read that, I'm like, oh, their one purpose is that they're going to give their power and authority to the beast. But that's not their one purpose. They're going to give their power and authority to the beast, but they have one purpose, and it's this. They will make war against the Lamb. They will fight against the Lamb of God. Really interesting thing. I would encourage you when you're studying the scripture to kind of wander a bit and think a bit. And I kept thinking, what is going on with Babylon though? Why are we talking about Babylon and, and this war with the Lamb and what's going on? And then the, the Old Testament story came to me. What was that story about all the people? It's the Tower of Babel. I'm like, oh, you're being silly. Babel and Babylon, what's the difference between Babel and Babylon? Turns out that the Tower of Babel was built in the area called Babylonia, which is where we get the, the reference to Babylon. Okay, wait, wait. That, but this is, oh, this is the end times. This is the beginning. Like, what's the deal? What did God say? Let's go down and confound their languages because they're going to do great things. No, no, no. What did they say? 
we're going to pierce the sky. We're going to reach the heavens. We're going to do things that could not yet be imagined. We can't be stopped. I, I, it's, it's kind of troubling, honestly. I'm not against, like, human aspiration, but when you look at the text of the story, it says they're going to, they're going to, they're going to aim for the stars. They're going to solve all the problems. We have this figured out, and they're going to pierce the heavens, and they mean they're going to assault God. They have one purpose, to wage war with God. And it says this, the lamb will triumph because he is Lord of lords and king of of kings. There's his name written on his thigh, you'll recall. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So he's going to triumph over those who would desire to uh, assault him, to wage war against the Lamb. I have a question. Do you believe there's a war going on? I mean that with everything in me. Do you believe, why is life so hard in Christ? Why is life so hard in this time? Why is the suffering so great? And then why is sometimes we make great suffering and it's not great suffering? There's even greater suffering than we see elsewhere. What's going on with this? It's a spiritual war, and it's an eternal war that's been waged against um, uh, God's creation and God the creator. That's, and by the way, I'm not saying out there. I'm saying in here. The way, J.C., that song that we sang, I hate that song. I hate that song. The last line, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I go, no, I don't want to sing that in worship. Then that final verse, here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. I don't want to be judged as an enemy of you. I can feel that inside of me. Oh, look at our world. I was watching someone this week do an interview, right? And they were talking about the future, what they could do, and what the possibilities are. And I was like, yeah, this guy, I like this guy. And he said, the only thing I can't stand is with people who think that God is real. And I just went, yeah, exactly. Julius did it. That's what I did. Like, what? So to be part of your club, I just had to deny God? Not going to happen. I can't. No way. Can't do that. Praise God. I, you sense that. There's just that one thing we got to remove, and then it'll all be good. God himself. They have one purpose, to wage war against the lamb. But the lamb, and here's the good news, will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Check this out. Look at verse 14. And with him will be, called, will be his called, chosen, faithful followers. I love this because actually it says we'll be triumph with the lamb. Not only will the lamb triumph, but those who are called, those who are chosen, and those who are faithful will be triumphant with him. Why? Because they're followers of the lamb. I, I, I thought that was an interesting turn of phrase that the lamb is being followed by the followers. 
uh, the song that came to mind, of course, was Mary had a little lamb, and everywhere Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. You know, the whole thing about a shepherd, my sheep know my voice, and, and I know my sheep, my sheep know me. You know, they know the sound of my voice. They come when I call. They, they know it's a voice of love and not a safety, uh, not judgment, not condemnation, not danger, and you respond. But isn't it remarkable, and I don't know why it stood out to me so much, but that we follow the lamb. The lamb is the leader the lamb is the one that we listen to. The lamb is the one that we pursue. And then as such, we are called, that's kaleo, right? Vokar, the vocation of the people. We are chosen or selected by him, you know, sheeps, goats, sheeps, goats. He invites us in. And then we are faithful, the opposite of adulterous. We are, uh, because of his grace to us, we are um, Faithful to him, I can't think of a better word, keeping his covenant with us, he saves us. If you think that's wild, now talk about changing how you see the story. This one blew me away, 15. And then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. And we had that up earlier, but that that river that flowed past the city, right? The, the great prostitute sets by the waters. And it, when I first read that back at the beginning of the chapter, when I was studying it, I'm like, oh, that's shipping. That's the great merchant, mercantile, right? The merchants of the world. But it's not the actual sea, and it's not the actual boats. It's the great flow of people who are just flowing past the great prostitute. That's just the the presence of all the people of the earth, the peoples, the multitudes, the nations, the languages that are just flowing past the great city. And the beast and the ten horns you saw, this surprised me, will hate the prostitute. See, so it looks like she's riding them and it's all for good, but they're gonna hate her and they're gonna bring her to ruin and they're gonna leave her naked and they're gonna eat her flesh and they're gonna burn her with fire. And again, if you read that on the face, you're like, oh my gosh, what is going on in this text? But if you think about the language being used, this is the great city. And how is the great city hated by those who have been carrying her when they turn on her and they, they um, it says what, ruin her. They strip her, right? Like just start to tear down all the, all the great things that were built up there. Uh, they consume her and then they burn her with fire. You see here the imagery of a city being destroyed something that was intended to be glorifying to God being torn down. I, I, I read that, and I can't help but see in the ancient context of Rome how that came to pass. There's going to be, the, next week, talking about the quickness of the fall of Babylon, but how quickly it happened. But then in our own day, I look around, and I see all the blessings of God being torn away. Listen, all the things that were meant to honor God being stripped back and laid bare, being consumed by her own people. And it looks like the pattern's repeating, leaving her destitute, having consumed all good that was there, and then finally burning her with fires. Look at the motivation 17. We're gonna end with this. Because God put into their hearts, that's the 10, um, the, uh, the beast, Let's see, where was that? Yeah, the ten, horn, the ten horns. Um, that's the kings, recall. God put into their heart to accomplish his purpose. 
by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's word is fulfilled. And so this is God's intention that they would turn on the great city and destroy her, bringing about God's judgment until his word is fulfilled. So finally, who is the woman? The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Now, you can go, well, that's Rome. It's obvious, right? I mean, it's a heck of a case he made it. That's Rome. It's a done deal, right? And yet, you can see how nations, even now, vie to rule over the earth. I mean, what's going on with Russia? What's going on with the United States? What's going on with China? Who's going to have dominion? Who's going to dominate the world? And so as much as it is a history lesson, you know, there's that great saying, those who won't study history are doomed to repeat it, that these things that were intended to, be, to glorify God end up being corrupted and turned into things that are anti-God, and then God uses their own turning on themselves to judge them in his, uh, in his will because he's God and we are not. The great city that rules over all the kings of the earth is the, the prostitute of Babylon, the great ba- Babylon the Great. So I wonder then as we wrap it up and we say, yes, that was the ancient city, but things that have happened, things that are happening, things that will happen again. Do you believe in the end, though, that the lamb will triumph? Do you you believe that God is accomplishing his purpose for his will to complete, fulfill his word? Because that's where we end up in this, right? Kind of where we started. One of the really shocking things is uh, how panicky we get about stuff. There's a virus before we prayed, and I'm not making fun of the virus. It's a, it's a tough deal, but we get so panicky about it. Or uh, there's an election coming up. <laughs> we get panicky about it. And the talking heads tell us, freak out, freak out, freak out. You go, wait a minute. Don't we believe the lamb triumphs in the end? I mean, I, mean, I understand the world panicking because this is their only hope, but this is our only hope. Is health and safety our only hope? Is the right king our only hope? Or is the lamb going to triumph? Do you believe the lamb triumphs? Listen, do you believe that God is accomplishing his purpose in this time to fulfill his word? So this morning as we... uh, we conclude, I want to share one more passage uh, with you. I want to pray first, and then we're going to um, share a time of communion. So pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to explore and expand maybe our view of your word and what you have to teach us about revelation and about your, uh, what you've shown us there, your teaching. Uh, we do pray, Father, that we would, we would be honest with ourselves about where we've been and where we are and where we're heading and ultimately that you would be glorified as we learn more about you, that we would be ready. And, and think about the whole text. Lord, what do we want? To not be unfaithful, to, to not be um, deceived, but to know you, your victory, to, to follow the Lamb. Would you help us to do that today? Would you show us your path? Would you invite us along with you? We thank you so much for the opportunity we have to learn and to explore, but ultimately we want to know you in a relationship. Uh, Father, I pray for those who, who, are, who are with us this morning, who are listening, who don't know that, that you would invite them in your kindness into a real relationship with you, that we'd be changed because we know the Lamb and we know the final part of the story, that you're triumphant. May you be glorified 
as we continue to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen.